Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined by my colleague Liz Hannaford. Hi, Liz. Hi there, Pete. And by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. Now, this week, we're looking once again at journalism under the lockdown from how an audio recorder that was used to document the Ebola outbreak in Sierra Leone became the key to telling the experiences of intensive care nurses and doctors in Bradford. And we hear from a crowdsourcing project looking at how or whether the way we are governed in the UK will change because of COVID-19 and the experience of isolation. But first, how are you both? Jez, you're recovering what from what sounded very much like COVID-19. Yes, Pete. Um, I, last week I was I was in bed pretty much the whole week with um, definitely symptoms that, that matched, uh, you know, COVID-19. I've not been tested, but uh, pretty much ticked everything that, um, that you know they've been advising of the, of the symptoms. So loss of energy, um, a, a cough, and quite a tight chest, um, and just really feeling rotten for a week. Um, started to feel okay towards the end of the week, and, and now pretty much back to normal. Although I've still got a bit of a bit of a cough. Um, yeah, so my wife had had it as well prior to that, although we weren't sure what it was then. But we've, we've, we've sort of worked on the assumption that it possibly is the, the virus and just sort of self-isolated for the, you know, the required period. But um, you are feeling like you've recovered now. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. As I say, I've still got a bit of a cough, but um, I would say pretty much back to normal now. So, um, you know, that's kind of followed the... Um, 10-day turnaround, I would say, that a lot of people have been reporting. Um, I also got uh, got news of what, one of my former colleagues from the Westmoreland Gazette, the, the paper where I started my career, uh, one, one of my former colleagues had, had died, sadly, last week um, with complications from the, the coronavirus. Um, he, was, he was 76, but he was, he was very, very fit and active, and he was retired. Um, still, you know, leading a very full and active life, but just suddenly hit by the by the virus and was hospitalised. And, and I got got news from one of my other colleagues uh, that he sadly passed away last week. So, you know, a huge outpouring of um, you know tributes to him on on social media. And one of the sad things, of course, is that people won't be able to go to his funeral. So, I think his widow is now planning a you know memorial service later in the year, but. Just very sad that you know that people won't be able to go and pay their respects at, the, at this point, really. Yeah, desperately sad times for for all the family mm. and friends, and, and for yourself who who worked with with them and so on. I mean, it is a. Yes. I guess it is just a desperately sad truth that it's going to touch us all in one way or another at some point, isn't it? Definitely, yes, yeah, yeah. It was it was very sad. He he was somebody who was you know a real grassroots journalist and. Uh, you know, quite a well-known columnist in in the Lake District. Um, so there's been lots of tributes from you know not just the journalism community but wider afield. You know, just people uh, wanted to pay their respects to to De- It was Dennis Harris was his name. Um, so quite a lot of tributes on online to him as well. So I'll I'll put some of those messages and tributes to Dennis on the on the show notes for for this week. Liz, how are how are you coping we're, now that we're more than two two weeks into all of this? I'm good, thank you. Unlike um, poor Jez, I've been quite healthy, my family too, and just mainly trying to think of creative ways to 
go out for a run that doesn't involve anywhere that's too narrow, avoiding canal paths and trying to choose the more secluded tracks that only local people know about. And I even did my very first ballet, online ballet class this morning, just because I thought this is the perfect time to try something which I've absolutely never done before. So, so that was fun. Um, but in terms of, you know, what's happening in, in the media, I'm just really interested in the um, talk about journalistic language. And that's partly is because uh, as part of my PhD research, um, I'm doing discourse analysis. So I'm interested in the way we use language and how that affects the way we, we behave and think about things. So, um, but Emily Maitlis, who's uh, one of the presenters on Newsnight, she's really attracted a lot of um, positive um, response on the media and on social media today because last night at the opening of the programme she had this sort of 90 second monologue where she really took issue with the kind of language that um, politicians and other parts of the media have been using when they talk about COVID-19. So on, on the one hand she was saying um, in response to the way Boris Johnson's illness is being talked about in press briefings and so on. And she said, you do not survive the illness through fortitude and strength of character, whatever the prime minister's colleagues will tell us. So really taking issue with all this stuff about, oh, he's a fighter, he's going to pull through. And again, that picks up on um, something Marina Hyde, one of the columnists at The Guardian, was writing about a couple of days ago. This way we sort of... Um, unthinkingly resort to the language, the metaphors of war when we talk about COVID-19 and when we talk about other diseases as well like cancer. We talk about, oh, it's a battle and doctors and nurses on the on the front line and how that can be really unhelpful and, and dismissive because it's, it's not dependent on our own strength and bravery whether we survive these things. It's about, you know, submitting to treatment and, and a lot of luck as well. But she also talked about um, how took, taking issue with the way people describe the virus as a, a great leveller, that, you know, oh, it can affect everybody, rich or poor, everybody suffers the same. And she said, well, this is a myth and it needs to be debunked because what we're finding is that it's not affecting everyone. It's people who are on, on the front line, to, to go back to those um, warlike metaphors. It is the bus drivers, the shelf stackers, the nurses, the care home workers, the hospital staff and shopkeepers. They're the ones who are most exposed. They're the ones who are catching the disease and they are disproportionately the lowest paid members of our workforce. And then, you know, social distancing, social self-isolating, that doesn't affect people you know, in a, in a level way either because people who live in, in small flats, in tower blocks and maybe several generations of the same family living together, they're going to be much, it's going to be much more challenging for them to deal with the lockdown than it is for those of us who are lucky enough to live in bigger houses with gardens. People who work in manual jobs, they're not able to work from home in the way that, that we can as academics, for example. So it was this sort of 90 second monologue that really, I think, um, made us as communicators, as, as journalists, really think about the kind of trite language and cliches that we're sometimes prone to using without thinking more 
more deeply about the effects of those particular language choices. Yeah, absolutely. We'll come back to the war metaphors in a little while because um, one of the, the pieces I want to talk about is this crowdfund, crowdsourcing project that's going on to look at the, the future of governance um, in the UK. But we will come back to that. But you, you talked about... Um, False claims and such, and false uh, false assumptions around the 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 disease and and the epidemic and the lockdown. I just wanted to mention a a report from from Ofcom that came out this morning. We're recording this lunchtime on Thursday. Um, Ofcom research saying around about half of people are either reading or recirculating completely false claims um, about coronavirus and about the spread, such as you know drinking warm water will help the will help um, ease the effects of of the the virus and stop you catching it and so on. So um, and there, there, of course there's the the big story that's been circulating, the big false story that's been circulating around five G. And how five G is the cause of all of this, mm. and that it's a uh, it's a chemical weapon that was manufactured by the Chinese defence industry, and so on. Um, it's useful to see that the Ofcom is across all of this, and that they're now also putting pressure on some of the social media platforms to to show up the falsity of some of these claims. What what are we to make of that, Jez? Yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting. I mean, you, you sort of see this proliferation of um, alternative uh, theories on, on, on what the coronavirus is. And, and, and people are, are taking a lot of this misinformation to extremes. And we've seen reports of um, fire attacks on 5G mobile phone masks. I don't know if you've seen that as well. Um, yeah, and in fact, Ofcom released a video earlier this week. I'll probably play a little clip of it. Ofcom released a video earlier this week, um, calling on people specifically not to do that because it's affecting if they if they burn down a, what they think is a five G phone mass, it's going to have an effect on phones generally in that whole area. Yeah, exactly. And, and we need the technology right at the moment, don't we, to sort of to be able to keep in contact and to you know to to put out the, the correct information that we need to hear. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, really. It's interesting as well, certainly the social media I've been, been seeing, a lot of people are praising a lot of the mainstream media and the, the sort of organisations like the BBC, which in, in recent months has, have come in for so much criticism over things like the coverage of Brexit, you know, criticisms from all, all sort of sides of the political debate. And yet now people are, are sort of praising... Uh, people like Emily Maitlis for, for being outspoken in this way, which is quite an interesting one. Because she, she she got quite a bit of criticism over the um, Prince Andrew interview, didn't she? So yes. it's interesting to see that she's now, you know, being praised for, for making this statement. As so often, it's quite a mixed picture, though, because we were talking last week about how a lot of established news organisations, trusted news sources are doing quite well out of this. <laughs> but in the last couple of days, we've had... Gannett, the the big local newspaper owner in, in the United States, um, yeah. how their shares have really tanked in the last couple of days. Mm. We've got Reach yeah. PLC announcing that they're furloughing hundreds of staff. And we've also got the, the, the liquidation of the, the company that, that owns the, the Jewish Chronicle. So very mixed news, really, for, for journalists around the world. Although, you know, the, yes. the, the positive stuff is great to see, but there's, there's a <laughs> negative side to this as well. There is. And Gannett obviously owns NewsQuest, yes. the, uh, uh, the company I used to work for. And I know a lot of my colleagues who are still in in 
newspapers and that. A lot of them are, are on furlough leave or are having to having to work from home. I know some of the sub editors were, were working from home as well with you know using tech at home to be able to produce newspapers. But even but print newspapers themselves are really suffering. And I noticed that in addition to the bigger companies like Reach and Gannett, uh, Gannett and NewsQuest, a lot of the smaller independent newspapers are well are suspending publications. So Tyndall newspapers, which have quite a lot of Welsh titles, they've uh, suspended publication in Glamorgan and, you know, huge numbers of staff are being furloughed. So, yeah, it's in that sense, it's, it's not good news at all for, uh, for local journalism or journalism generally, really. Yeah. Going back, Pete, to your point about the misinformation, uh, we've been sharing with students a course put together by First Draft, which, of course, are, uh, it's, it's a, um, an organisation which particularly wor works to give journalists the tools to um, counter misinformation um, shared in, in crises like this. So they've put together a short online course for journalists covering coronavirus, including how to understand this kind of information disorder why and how false information that we've been talking about spreads and um, so that might be something we can put a link to for for listeners yeah and there's a separate link as well which I'll, I'll put on from the national council for the training of journalists about how to cover scientific reports and and surveys and so on so we'll, we'll put those links into the show notes but a reminder that you're listening to the Bank to Rights podcast from the Journalism Department at Manchester Metropolitan University and you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang and you can subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But more now on that radio programme I mentioned at the top of the show, the NHS Frontline on BBC Radio 4. Regular listeners will remember we reported last week on how journalists are managing to cover general news on radio and online during the clampdown. But one of the toughest tasks for journalists, especially on radio and TV, is getting access to voices inside hospitals, care homes or the homes of people living in isolation because they have chronic health conditions that put them at particular risk. Radio 4's Winifred Robinson and producer Sue Mitchell have found a way to document the work of ICU staff inside Bradford Royal Infirmary by getting them to do the recording themselves. On the line from BBC Studios in Salford, they told me more. Well, the obvious problem reporting coronavirus is that it's a highly, highly infectious disease. So it's presented journalists with a unique set of problems, hasn't it? Certainly in the UK, anyway. So what you hear in the programmes are the audio diaries and interviews that have been done by a doctor, a senior doctor at Bradford Royal Infirmary, as the hospital prepares for the pandemic and as the patients start to come in. So that it's both his thoughts day by day, what they're facing kind of organisationally, but then much more important than that, his interviews with his colleagues as the pressure mounts and just how scared they all are um, of all the things that you would be scared of, like catching it, but also... They're really scared of failing in their professional work. You know, they've never before faced the idea that the NHS will be overwhelmed and that they'll be rationing, perhaps, ventilators. And that's what they're facing, all those big fears. And then just lots of deaths, lots and lots of deaths. You know, we've heard in the programme a junior doctor only a year out of medical school and on one day on the ward, four patients at once went into cardiac arrest and we're told that 
if that happened to you once in your professional lifetime, you would be really unlucky. And it's happened to this poor young woman in a single day, and it ha- might happen to her tomorrow and the day after and the day after that. It's a shocking time, and the programme also had... You know, there were, this week's episode, the, the Doctor was talking about the fact that the, the diameter of the oxygen pipes coming into the wards wasn't really wide enough to cope with the amount of oxygen, that, oxygen they were having to use. Yes, it, it's extraordinary, and that had never occurred to them. I mean, it certainly had not ever crossed my mind, but why would it? Because we've never been faced with a disease where people who are stricken by it need so much oxygen. We've never had to think about that before. Sue, tell me a little bit about the technicalities of um, why why the hospital in Bradford, first of all? Why did you choose that institution? So me and Winifred have been recording at that hospital, actually, for the past decade now, because we started... Uh, alongside a huge uh, longitudinal study um, looking at every baby born in the city. So the aim was that they'd follow 14,000-plus mothers and babies um, through the sort of lifetime of up to up to adolescence um, to look at some of the health impacts that those children would face as they grew. And it's been a, an amazing sort of insight into some of the lives of the families and into some of the issues that the the babies have faced. They're now in their sort of 12th, 13th year, and we've been alongside the doctors. And that research is actually led by Dr John Wright. So when we've built this relationship with him, and obviously when the uh, pandemic and news of the likely toll in hospitals sort of started to surface here, our first instinct was to see what we could maybe do that built on the links we had with that hospital and with Dr Wright in particular. And how does the how are you getting hold of the material and how are the how are the doctors and the other health workers recording that stuff? Well it's quite lucky because I'd given Dr Wright a Zoom recorder um when he went to Sierra Leone to run an Ebola clinic during that outbreak. And uh Although it sounds very lax, I hadn't actually ever got around to taking it back off him. <laughs> I mean, at first it was because it was uh, it might have been a bit contagious. When he first reappeared, the BBC didn't want it back straight away. And then actually sort of, they actually forgot it had ever gone out to him. And I actually had forgotten about it. And um, occasionally it did sort of crop up. And when we were back in Bradford recording, uh, and something just stopped me actually reclaiming it. Maybe it was the thought that one day something might happen. I wasn't really thinking in this country, but obviously he'd been out to Sierra Leone and I was thinking, well, maybe there are other outbreaks and things might happen abroad. Obviously, this is much closer to home than I'd ever imagined, but he got this Zoom out of the cupboard, dusted it down, and he transfers audio to to us every evening. So he records as much. I mean, he's obviously really busy. He's sort of heading some of the pandemic planning and... He's in, on the wards and he's it's a really full-out role, flat-out role. So, but, you know, it's difficult to record too much, but he does what he can and he sends us each day as much audio as, he, as, he, as he's able to collect. It's an interesting thing, though, because the, the, the experience of Ebola in West Africa, um, there were a number of BBC journalists who, who, who did that and, you know, a number of health workers have become familiar with that. And so now, whatever, whatever it is, four years on, we're able to, able to build on that experience and it does allow people to tell their stories themselves, I mean, actually in, 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 in really compelling ways. Yes, I mean, citizen journalism that we've been talking about for such a long time, you know, wow, is it here now? 
if you look at the the main television news bulletins, if you go online, these extraordinary personal testimonies, completely unmediated by anybody else. And it, it does make me think, you know, that we, we've kind of been the custodians, haven't we, of the storytelling as trained professional journalists. journalists. It makes me think, you know, we've, been, we've jealously guarded that maybe a bit. We've stopped this from happening. Or maybe most people didn't want to do it, didn't want to become reporters, and they've just kind of been forced into it. I think it's really interesting. I think people will be talking about it. You know, it, it's a really big... I think it's probably a big pivotal point in our history... It will change things. It will change journalism. I think. I think. I think you may be right, Winifred, and that's 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 um, a really, I guess, one of the one of the few positives in in this story at the moment. Just to finish off, really, then what's what's the the plan for the coming weeks? Are you going to proceed with the same sort of format, the same, and any any changes you're planning to the, the program? Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, we're doing well out of his recordings, yeah. and and in a way, it's not our job to sort of dictate it too much because it is meant to be how it's impacting on them in the hospital. It's him and his colleagues. And he's recording with people at all levels, from nurses, doctors, uh, support services, cleaners, you know, people delivering donations. It's You really get a feel for what it's like in the hospital and the feelings of those people as they confront this. And we want him to be able to do that in as free a way as possible so that it does actually reflect what's going on and the reality of the situations they're facing. I and mean, we give pointers, but our hope is just to that it's an important public record and that he sees that as a reason for doing it himself, you know, that not many people are actually capturing this complete 360 on, on these hospital wards. The actual minutiae, the detail, the sort of life, the feelings, the sort of day-by-day unfolding of this story to actually be able to sort of capture that and have it saved for posterity. Whatever, however we cut it, we're really pleased that that has been recorded and we just want him to be able to carry on doing that and us to be able to bring it to listeners. What's been really fascinating is when he started recording it, he told us that predictions were that the North, so Bradford, would be a fortnight behind London. And we are a week behind in getting this stuff on air because obviously there's a slight time lag and we have worked very quickly on them to try and get them on air as quickly as possible and it gives you an, an idea even with citizen journalism and everything's going on online how long it takes for a story to get through because in this week's episode so that's week beginning what is it 5th of april is it a week what yeah. was the date was it on monday yeah, yeah, yeah. monday mm-hmm. yeah so week beginning 5th of april He's been talking about adapting the kind of ventilators people use who have sleep apnea to use on people with coronavirus. He's been talking about oxygen running out. He's been talking about where will the cancer patients get treated. And they're all stories that are in the news today. So that's interesting, that time lag. And the, the only thing we do with his material is we just write a script between us that just kind of clears up any bit you might not understand or introduces people who haven't self-identified or maybe I just try to summarise what you're going to hear next. Our bit of it is just to explain and clarify, make it easy to understand. It's not completely unmediated, is it? It isn't completely the same as him putting that stuff out there online. Um, but I think it's as close as you probably as you get on BBC Radio 4. 
Yeah, and no, we're really lucky because we've got fantastic technical on the sort of studio side. We're working with someone who's with us as a team to try and because there are some difficulties with recording in, in, in protective equipment. So, for example, the recorder's going into sort of zipped bags now, and there's quite a lot of interference on the recordings. I think technically it would be hard for us to do that. Obviously, Rich is with us doing it alongside us. So, apart from that, those smoothing out on the sort of audio weaving it all together, the scripting, you're really actually there. You're as close to being there as you as you possibly could be, I think, if, as a listener. That's very much the impression I've had listening to it. And so um, hats off to, well, to all three of you, actually, um, for, for putting it together. I think it is a, a, a enormously valuable public record of what's going on. And, uh, yeah, I, I hope, hope wish you every success with it for the, for the coming weeks. Thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Write. So Sue, Winifred and Richard behind the desk, on the desk, thanks very much indeed for coming on the programme. He <laughs> wanted to stay anonymous, but we've brought him in. <laughs> so, and, and I should add thanks to Liz too for helping set up that interview because the Richard there in the studio is actually your husband, Liz, isn't he? He, he is indeed, yes. And unlike most of us, he's been having to go into work at Media City pretty much every day during all of this because um, you know you need somebody actually sitting at the mixing desks in the studios actually to make all this work so yes most presenters I would say are now a set up and able to work from home and a lot of the producers are working from home but the the technical staff the sound staff obviously have to be in the studios to um, you know waggle the favorite faders and, and push the buttons to to make all that work and, and, and amongst um, other things Richard's been kind of advising um, presenters and reporters about how to set up home studios yeah absolutely and you know that's that's not easy with all the um, you know they have um, databases libraries which have all the materials on it and then trying to access them remotely isn't easy it takes time for programs to to download some producers and certainly some presenters are perhaps less technically um, confident than some others, shall we say. So it raised all kinds of problems like that. But also within the studios as well, because like I said, you do have to have some, a skeleton staff in there. And, you know, you're supposed to have two metres separating you. But that, you know, radio studios, as, as you and I know, Pete, are not, you know, luxurious in terms of space. No. It's usually just some, you know cubbyhole under the stairs kind of thing so um they where they haven't been able to because often you have two studio managers two sound engineers working at a mixing desk on a, on a complicated live program one to deal with all the different outside sources coming in one to actually deal with balancing balancing the sound from the studio so where that isn't two meters they've had to put um so these perspex drum screens that they normally use when they've got bands in to to keep the the drummer not quite as, as loud as they they are um, so using them to try and shield people um, they've got yellow tape on the floor of studios to remind people you know where they need to to be in order to distance themselves from other people and at the start of a, a studio session they're having to um, actually wipe down the the desks with alcohol wipes and again Pete you'll know from you and I know from working in radio studios Nobody ever did that. And mixing desks probably are filthy. <laughs> and we've all spilt coffee and goodness knows what on them. So the idea of, of having to, to wipe 
all those surfaces down with all the faders and, and the knobs and everything. So it is, you know, they're having to think about things in very different ways, move things into, into bigger studios because some studios are just too small for, for more than one per person to work safely at the moment. So it really has required really rethinking the way we do live broadcasting. Well, quite a few of the programmes are now pre-recorded in order to get around some of the technical problems. And what the long-term effect of that might be on, on the way we do um, live broadcasting, I don't know. We're going to get to the stage when, you know, you won't bring people into a studio to, to do a face-to-face -face interview and it will just be normal to do all these things down the line and, and what impact that will have. So yeah, I'm pretty sure there will be lots of, of questions asked about how we how we go forward with, with broadcasting in future. Yeah, certainly some of the, the longer term impact that we, we kind of talked a little bit last week about the longer term impact on news <coughs> gathering and, and Winifred mm. referred to it there in the in the interview about the 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 how citizen journalism is in a way coming to the fore now because people are you give people the recording equipment um, yeah. And they, they produce the material themselves with very relatively little input from the likes of Richard and Sue when it comes to putting the programme together. And I mean, I won't really talk too much about where I'm recording now, but I'm actually having to lie underneath my desk at home. Um, and you can probably hear the, the next door dog barking through the wall part of this. But anyway, as we're recording this, it's Thursday lunchtime and there's lots of debate about how or when the current lockdown in the UK might be lifted. And when that happens, what things will could look like when we step back outside, blinking into the world of work and life outside our homes. What's the future for our high streets, our offices, indeed our schools, colleges and universities, but also what's the future for our government? Now, not so much this Conservative government, which had looked so secure with its 80 plus majority only a few weeks ago, but for government in general. It's a question which the so-called slow news organisation, the Tortoise, is tackling. It held what it called an online thinking on Wednesday evening with the Bristol Cable website. I logged in to hear what people thought, and earlier this morning, Tortoise editor and organiser Polly Curtis told me how the debate went. A little more than a hundred participants last night. Um, were mm. you were you surprised by the numbers, or is that the kind of numbers that you've been expecting for these online dialogues? That's the kind of numbers we're getting, and actually, that wasn't by any means our biggest we've been doing two three hundred um others um it's kind of it's it's a bittersweet victory to get that many people because it makes it harder to chair and to make sure that everybody really has a chance to speak um but um you know the point of a thinking is to share ideas deep listening to really open your mind to different points of views so um you know we're we're just thrilled that people are actually looking for ways to connect and that we can help with that at this time. Now, one of the things that came out, I, I guess, about halfway through the discussion was you introduced Matthew Dancona, um, who mm. listeners to the podcast will remember we had Matthew on um, late last year. Now, you were talking to Matt about a project that you're both working on that, that kind of directly relates to some of the discussion that was happening last night, aren't you? Yeah. So Matt and I... Um, for the past kind of eight months really have been um, working on a project called The Rules um, and together with our members we have been on an expedition to try and work out how you'd go about setting a new set of principles 
for a written constitution. And this really came out of the whole Brexit period, the, the, the sense that democracy was really straining at the limits of what the constitution could hold together, really. And you saw moments like the Supreme Court battle when that really frayed. And even this week with this uncertainty about who's actually in charge of the country when the prime minister is ill, um, our constitution doesn't really set all of that out. But I think underneath that, so there's a very kind of technical side to uh, codify constitution, but underneath that is something much more fundamental, which I think is coming to the fore now about the deal between the powerful and the people, you know, what do we consent to? Um, what do we expect from a state? And in a period now, what we heard last night is the big government is back. Um, what do we expect from it? What's the role of business in that as well, when business is getting so much um, public money? Um, you know, starting to see the relationship between all the pillars of the states and citizens and, and thinking, what, what's the new deal that's going to come out of all of this? And what we heard last night, particularly from John McTernan, was this idea that, that this discussion is now blown open. Um, if you change the way the state works as rapidly as we have done in the last month, you can't go back to normal. You've got to rewrite the rules. One of the things that struck me listening to the discussion was there was a lot of there were, for example, a lot of people were talking about homelessness and how homelessness mm. has been quote unquote cured in a matter of weeks by forcing people, forcing local authorities and so on to provide shelter, semi mm. semi permanent shelter for for homeless people, and so the, there are significantly fewer people sleeping rough now than there were less than mm. a month ago. So that might be one kind of long, longer term change that's happened as a result of it. But there was a lot of talk about life in life in in wartime and so on. And so after the First World War and immediately after the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918-1919, there was a widening of the, the franchise in, in Britain. And so are you expecting some kind of more... Should we expect something like, I don't know, a kind of constituent assembly to have a look at what mm. what happens to the future of government in the UK? I, I, I think you have to be careful at moments like this because um, there's clearly this big opportunity to have a conversation about the kind of state we want. Um, but there is also a danger that lots of people just project what they wanted anyway onto the state um, and interpret what's happening in the way that they want the world to change and that they wanted the world to change. Um, so, and, and also the fact that we are firefighting so much at the moment, do we have the capacity to think strategically at the same time about these really big long-term questions? So I just want to temper a bit of the kind of you know, almost optimism, I feel, about um, having a proper conversation about a new deal um, with the reality that actually there's a lot going on is this moment. And, um, you know, we don't know how fundamentally we've changed as a country. Um, I mean, I think the idea of a, a citizen's assembly, that's something we've looked at a lot and reported on a lot of the processes of how that works through the rules. Um, and um, and I think I think I think there's a brilliant opportunity there, and people do want a part in it. But actually, there's a tension with what's happening. Where during the election, we went and did lots of thinkings across the country, and I heard two things that were quite opposing. One is people saying we want more of a voice, we want more of a say, 
and the other one saying we want less politics and we want more um, kind of technical government and governments that are apolitical and we can trust. And essentially, that's what we're going to get through this is a, you know, some form of government of national unity, even if it doesn't have the opposition on the front benches, um, actually a sense that politics is suspended um, and people want to trust in their politicians through a crisis. So I think there's a push and a pull around that. You know, some people really, really want a say in the way the democracy is working, but actually other people just really want to be able to trust their leaders to navigate these really difficult times. So I have no idea how that's going to play out at the moment. I like the idea of citizens' assemblies, but I actually think people are falling in love with experts and expertise and strong government again. Okay, well, fascinating times, fascinating stuff. I mean, worrying times as well, obviously. But maybe one question that you can answer as a journalist: what, what's, what's the kind of journalistic outcome of of these these thinkings, but also mm. of of this this project that you're working on with Matt, the rules? Mm. So, the thinkings are the engine of tortoise journalism. We start with thinkings. Um, to really challenge our own ideas, bring lots of voices in to try and get to a more complex view of the world. So the outcome we hope and believe is um, more in-depth, nuanced um, journalism that isn't following a particular editorial line, but really challenging you to get to a better version of the truth through listening. Um, and the rules, um, so the rules was a project pre-C19, um, and our intention had always been to run a series of think-ins um, through the spring and um, a members panel where we bring our members into the conversation about how we're actually reporting out, and then produ to produce what we call the tortoise file, which is our weekly big story in June, setting out this idea about what the principles for a codified constitution would look like, but with all the reporting to back that up, testing the different mechanisms that we're advocating for um, and building an army of people um, behind us um, who have been engaged in the pro process to, to help us promote it. That's all kind of up to the epics of C19. But what last night thinking told us was that there is a thirst to have that conversation and to think about it in this new world that we're in. Um, and so Matt and I will, will now regroup and aim to towards something like a tortoise file that that, that explores the idea of um, you know what what the New Deal might look like. I think we might be less prescriptive because things are moving so fast and changing so fast, but I think putting it on the agenda is really really important. Absolutely. Well, we'll put links to to the the website, obviously, and and mm -hmm. to where where people can can read and, and maybe contribute to that. Um, but look, thanks very much indeed, Polly, um, Polly Curtis, editor and partner at the Tortoise. Thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Write. All right. Thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. So Polly Curtis from the Tortoise, and we'll put a link to the website where you can also subscribe to their daily newsletter, The Sensemaker, and you can download the Tortoise app to get more. So thanks all. That's almost it for this week. But before we go, Liz, you're going to be working with some of our students to document their experiences of life under the lockdown for the Northern Quota website. Is that right? 
That's right, yes. So we're hoping, or we have already started, to gather various stories from our students who are just finding, you know, innovative ways to, to get through this as we all are. And also, um, you know, this kind of ties in with their assessment work as well. Um, a lot of them have had to, you know, rethink their original ideas to, to pick up and to adapt to the new situation we're finding ourselves in. So we're really interested to, to get those stories in those sort of um, you know under the radar community stories that you know the mainstream news organisations maybe aren't aren't able to cover because they're looking at the at the big issues. We're hoping that using our working with our students, we'll be able to get those hopefully some quite positive stories from from the community, which we can get up onto our Northern Quota website. So I'm looking forward to to hearing what to working with them on that. Yeah, looking forward to reading reading a lot of that. Now, um, I'm hoping we will be back later this month and we can maybe have a look at how that, that material is coming on. It all depends on marking commitments, holidays, and, of course, where COVID-19 takes us. But in the meantime, do subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Stitcher, and we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed. Or, of course, you can also find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. Finally... Before we go, I thought we could play out this week with a project from MIT, the renowned Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where a group of researchers has created what they say is the sound of coronavirus. They've assigned a musical note to each of the amino acid that makes up the spikes that surround each virus. Why? Well, there is apparently a genuine reason why the researchers can use music to study how antibodies or drugs could bind onto the virus and kill it which, of course, is what we want. I'll put a link in the show notes to the story on the Science Magazine website. The instrument you're hearing is a Japanese koto, or harp, by the way. But that's about it for this week. Remember to tweet us at RightsBang if there are issues from your reading or your lectures that you'd like us to cover in future episodes. In the meantime, we have been Bang to Rights. Thanks, Liz. Thank you. And thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. And thank you for listening. Stay well. We'll see you soon.